Hello, friends. Welcome to the Christchurch Port Orange Midweek Podcast, where we deep dive into the scriptures we examined from the previous Sunday morning without the constraint of time, as well as discuss questions and topics of interest from members of our Christchurch family. I'm Pastor Jesse Jarvis, your host. Let's dive in. Welcome back, everybody. We are continuing through our Binge the Bible series and deep diving this week into the Old Testament books of Joshua and Judges, and I think we'll even dabble in Ruth for just a few minutes before we're out of here today. Thanks so much for joining us and for your questions. Those of you who are still sending in questions, we really appreciate that. It helps us to know where to spend the most time. We are looking at some incredible portions of Scripture, so many powerful stories um, that stand alone through Joshua and Judges and Ruth. And as we continue to watch the storyline of Israel and God's purposes and promises fulfilled and the types and shadows of God's plan for salvation to be fulfilled through our King Jesus, uh, it is just fascinating. And the more familiar we get with the story, the more we understand the little component parts and how they all start to fit together. So hopefully that will crystallize a little bit in your experience uh, through the reading and then also for those of you following us on the podcast. So we do have some specific questions, but I wanted to kind of just give a little bit of an overview of Joshua and Judges, and then just uh, highlight a few little hotspots that are in these books for our consideration. Now, I was telling Bill, who's joining us today, Bill, our worship and tech director. Hey guys, welcome back. Just telling him how my brain is about to explode with dozens and dozens of hour-long sermons in both of these two books, and so I'm trying to really hold it together and stick to my notes here. Um, but I just wanted to give a little a little bit of an overview. So it's important to recognize where we are in the story, and if you're new to the Bible, it, it'll all seem very confusing. There won't be great hooks in your mind for what's happening when and who came from who and who's the good guys and the bad guys. There's a lot of kind of stuff that's going on here. And so I always have found when I'm listening to preaching on a particular Old Testament topic, it's helpful to have kind of like a summation of what has happened uh, up to this point and where this kind of fits into the narrative. And so Joshua is the first history book after the conclusion of the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, and it's picking up the story of conquest into the promised land, the land of Canaan. So this is the land that was shown to and promised to Abraham, childless Abraham, who is the father of our faith that was reaffirmed to his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, who became Israel, the father of 12 sons, and each of those 12 sons representing a tribe of the nation of Israel. That family of 70 persons went into the incubator of Egypt during a period of famine at the end of Genesis and spent 400 years as a family becoming a great nation. And then, of course, the Exodus tells the story of God's deliverance out of slavery in Egypt after those 400 years and into freedom and to the new identity of the people of God, Israel, in the wilderness. And so that's what uh, Exodus kind of tells us about, Numbers tells us about. And then Deuteronomy kind of puts us on the cusp of a retelling of that whole story with eyes towards the next generation leading up to Joshua. And so we've talked about that in previous podcasts. And now we are following the leadership of Joshua into a new era of um, the history of God's people. And so Joshua looks very different than what we've read so far as the kind of 
the wandering nomadic Israelites, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, most of what took place in their story in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is, is out there without their own space. And so this is a transition into having land that's their own. And it really is a gift from God. It's grace from God. And it's fulfilling his ultimate purpose, of which these things are simply foreshadows. And so there is a promised land that is promised to every person who puts their faith in the God of the Bible, in Yahweh, uh, in Jesus. And so we look to Jesus, trust in him, and then we become part of his kingdom. And we are in a series of like wilderness wanderings through this life until the consummation, the return of the king, in, in which the whole earth made new and reunited with heaven. So the heaven and earth uh, kind of breakdown that took place in Genesis 3 is now put back together. And so you have the spirit realm and the physical realm coming together, the presence of God with his people. But the goal is to have all of God's people dwelling on a renewed planet. And so you have like a new Eden. And it's not just a garden, but it's a city. It's filled with uh, people and development. And so when Jesus comes back, the world as it exists is kind of going to be a little bit of like a Joshua experience. The the um, the Israelites are going into a land already built, but inhabited by the enemies of God, essentially. And then God's bringing judgment, and then then there's a new in, inhabiting that takes place. And so a lot of times in our Western evangelical thinking, we imagine the promised land being heaven after we die. But that really isn't the biblical narrative. The biblical story is about we, we die, we go to God's presence, and we're part of this cloud of witnesses. But God's bringing about his purposes on the earth. And Jesus is going to be returning to the earth. In a physical form, he's going to rule and reign on the earth. And we are going to reign with him. And it's going to look very different in some ways. Jesus says that we're not going to marry or be given in marriage. Um, that there's going to be things like the judging of angels. And we're going to be brought into the heavenly realm in new and unforeseen ways. So there's going to be a lot about the new earth that's different from the old earth. But there's also a lot of continuation. And so we're going to be building and inhabiting the cities that already exist. Um, we're going to be uh, interacting with geography and places. Um, this is a big comfort to me. I've always wanted to travel. I've done very little traveling. But I've, I, always, I always have this little itch to kind of see all the continents in my, in my lifetime. I don't know if that will ever happen. But those continents aren't going anywhere. In the Jesus story, in the resurrection, the final resurrection, we'll have essentially eternity to spend on the earth experiencing all that God has for us. So there's a very real and tangible future. And and uh, this, this little picture of Joshua leading the people of Israel into a world inhabited by the enemies of God and then bringing judgment uh, as the people of God. Of course, we're, our, the judgment we're looking forward to is the re- return of Christ and the final consummation. But then his people inhabit the space that is. And so you're going to see a lot of destruction followed by inhabiting and rebuilding and so that's kind of a little picture of what is, what or what was, what is, and what will be. And uh, I mentioned that because I've gotten some questions recently with some kind of like just big picture questions about, okay, you know, the earth is reported to be billions of years old or millions of years old or tens of thousands of years old, depending on who you're listening to. And like, what's the deal with, you know, why, why did God send Jesus in the first century AD as we call it? Why not later? Why not earlier? And so there's a lot of the things that we don't understand of the purposes of God. But so much of the big picture is is exceedingly clear. Okay, so God is after a place to dwell with a people created in his image. But he doesn't 
want to just have a perfect people. He intends to have a perfected people. This is why the scriptures tell us that we're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's not in our righteousness or it's not in a uh, earthly covenant. All of the covenants give way ultimately to the new covenant, which is in Christ's blood. So God has a plan to dwell with a perfected humanity in space-time. And so he's been interacting with humanity nonstop since the creation, whether that was walking with Adam and Eve in the garden or revealing himself to Noah or Abraham, working through the people Israel, speaking through prophets and priests. And even there's a lot of interaction between God and also the enemies of God, different kings, different peoples. And so God's not, um, he's not shunning everyone out and preferring Israel. He's working in humanity through Israel to bring good news of great joy for all people. And while though the spirits of the powers of the air and the people groups who are opposed to God suffer judgment and death all the way through Joshua, which is kind of hard for us to stomach, there's also a regular occurrence of God saving people right out of those same environments, really highlighting the faith of unbelieving nations through believing individuals. And so you're getting this picture in Joshua of, okay, here's some uh, unbelieving people or unbelieving people groups from which there are believing people. And then here is this believing group uh, that is oftentimes pictured with unbelieving people in it. And so you're going to get the story of Rahab, for instance, um, and she becomes an instrument of God's uh, faithfulness to Joshua through the destruction of Jericho, and then she's saved, followed immediately by Achan, who is supposed to be of the good tribe, and he ends up doing the bad thing. And so you're going to see this happening throughout the scriptures, and it's especially prominent here in Joshua. So I want you to see how God's always working to bring about um, a, a full humanity in the earth. And it's not about us and them, the good and the bad, but God also does choose to work through people and through um, periods and situations. So when you get to the New Testament and you see words like chosen, uh, a lot of times in our Western evangelicalism, post-Reformation, we think about the cho chosenness as being, or election as being unto salvation, the saved and the unsaved. And that's doing exactly the opposite of what the scriptures are doing. They're showing that, okay, all have, all have fallen away. None are faithful. God reveals himself. And when there's faith in what God has revealed, there is salvation. And the choosing is not so much about being chosen unto salvation or unto condemnation. The choosing is about God bringing this good news through a people into the rest of the world and fulfilling his purposes. And so it's less about salvation. It's more about vocation. And so these are really important questions. And the scriptures tell us clearly that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So I don't know the exact answer to why God did what he did when he did. But one interesting feature that a lot of times we don't think about is the actual population of the earth at any given time. So here we are living in the 21st century, and there's roughly 8 billion people alive on the planet. But if you rewind the tape just 200 years to before the Industrial Revolution, there was only 2 billion people on the planet. And if you rewind even further to the first century when Christ lived, there was scarcely 250 million people on the planet. And when you go back to when God called Abraham, there was less than 100 million humans on the planet. You go back to the days of the first accounts of Genesis, which we don't actually have a date for. Some have tried to calculate that date based on the genealogies and the lengths of days. Uh, and if you do that, you're going to calculate somewhere around 10,000 years. But the scripture was never meant to be an exact accounting of the passage of time. Those dates and ages are in there for other reasons. And so that's not really what they're there for. So we don't know how old things are, but you can go back in time to just using science, history, um, 
archaeology and during the Iron Age, you know, there's maybe 50 million people total on the planet. And so Christ came very early in the story of human um, kind as a population. And if you were to take all of the people of all time that have ever lived, you're looking at somewhere in the 110 to 120 billion people. And it's interesting if you were to look at the whole earth as a potential landscape for life, and a lot of it's uninhabitable in our present condition, but it would not be unfeasible to house 200 billion people on our planet if all of the available space uh, land masses were cultivated to sustain human life. And that is interesting. So this is all going somewhere, and a lot of people are fixated on when does it end. I can't tell you when it ends. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. Um, we're reading the signs in the times like anybody else in every generation. But the picture we get in Joshua that I want to draw your attention to is one of judgment, conquest, and new life. Now, it doesn't come to fruition. There's going to be corruption within it because the story is not finished. Because what we need is a perfect Israel, which we don't have until Jesus. What we need is a perfect leader, which we don't have until Jesus. What we need is a perfect righteous king, which we don't have until Jesus. What we need is a perfect prophet, mediator, which we don't have until Jesus. And so all of these things are foreshadows of him and then his working through the church in the church age and then his final return and consummation of all things. And that's when the ultimate fulfillment of everything comes together. So I don't know how old the earth is. I do know that God has a purpose and a plan in everything that he's done. I do know that Jesus came at just the right time. And I do know that God has been revealing himself to humanity and receiving anyone who would come to him by faith in who he is from the beginning of time to present. And right now we are in the age when Jesus is at the epicenter of that good news. And it's incumbent upon us to present that and represent that in the way that we live. Now, the uh, this is a question that I have been kind of struggling with. Um, I don't know if anybody else has thought about this, but there's a couple different ways of reading the Old Testament and answering the question, who wrote this, when, and why? And so as you read it at the pace we're reading it, you're going to start to see a lot of connections book by book. Um, and a lot of times when the author is writing and making reference to current events or current descriptions of places, um, or the reason why things are done in a certain way, which we'll see in uh, Judges 11. We talk about Jephthah and Jephthah's daughter and the commemoration of Jephthah's daughter. So there's a reference from the narrator saying, this is why we do this thing even to this day. Or Joshua and the 12 stones that were set up at the Jordan crossing, those stones are there to this day. Or the pile of rocks that was placed on Achan after he was stoned and his family killed for his sin. That st stack of stones is there to this day. So you start to ask the question, okay, who wrote this, when, why, and for what purpose? And so on the far like humanist, progressive, non-faith, scholastic angle, this is all propaganda that was written during the kind of Babylonian exile period in the 500, 400 BC period. And none of this existed except in oral tradition and was compiled by a number of different sources. And so if you do like text criticism or higher criticism, you're going to find that there's different sources, the the Yahwistic and the Deuteronomistic, and there's different pieces of this that scholars believe were kind of carried out or proposed by certain groups, and they have agendas such as justifying a Davidic king versus a Benjaminite king, so these sorts of things. Um, but ultimately, we have to recognize that behind all of the human process by which we came to receive these books, they are attributed to God as their ultimate author. 
And when you encounter them, when you recognize how they work together and what they present in a unified story that ultimately leads to Jesus, you recognize that there's more than human authorship, human intention. This is not propaganda. This is divine revelation. And humans of faith throughout the histories have recognized the value of these works and the reason that they're combined into the 66 books of the Old and New Testament for us today is because of that same understanding that people of faith have had as they've received these books. And there's lots of books that have been written um, that aren't in here because they lack that distinct characteristic, even though they were read and cherished by people of antiquity. And so this is what these books present. And so certainly um, there's fin- w- these works were created by Moses, the first five books, as he received them from the Lord, but then they were compiled by other groups of people and edits are added and glosses are added, and openings and closings. And, um, and they're also working together uh, hand in hand. And the people who are writing the later books are pulling on the themes of the older books and recognizing the fulfillment and, and so on and so forth. So we're going to recognize those things and we're going to see both the human elements and the divine elements. And I want to try to draw that out for us um, as we walk through these books together. So let's talk about Joshua. So uh, Joshua begins, as we saw on Sunday, with God's call of Joshua and the death of Moses. And one of the things that stuck out to me I thought was super funny, I didn't mention this in the sermon, but Numbers 13, Moses sends out 12 tribes, or 12 spies, uh, one from each of the tribes. And the, the picture there is fairness. Okay, Moses is taking one representative from each tribe, and they're all 12 going out there. And of course, when they come back, Joshua was one of those 12, and Caleb. And they're the only two of that generation that didn't perish in the wilderness. But it's interesting when you get to chapter two of Joshua, Joshua sends out two spies, <laughs> which I just think is hilarious. He said, oh, there was 10 that shouldn't have gone that day and I'm not sending 12 out. I don't care what you say. And it's those two spies that have this uh, interaction uh, with Rahab and then she smuggles them safely um, out of Jericho and then uh, strikes up a deal to where she and her family are preserved in the uh, Israelite attack and defeat of Jericho. And so this gives the the confidence to invade. You're going to see that again and again and again in both Joshua and Judges, that there's a lot of timidity and fear in God's people, even though he's demonstrated his faithfulness and his power, and uh, he has the capacity to fight their battles. There's regularly a, a fear. And uh, oftentimes, one of the things that strengthens the people of God is not the word of God, but it's the terror of their enemies. <laughs> the enemies of God are more convinced that um, God is with the Israelites, then the Israelites are convinced that God is with the Israelites. And it really demonstrates for us, I think it rings true for our human experience, just how powerful fear is. Um, fear is more normal to us than faith. And so whether the, the enemies of God are stricken with fear, and that is what ends up being the, the confidence of the people of God, or the people of God are shaking with fear, and somebody has to stand up with some boldness, like we're going to see David does and other, other figures do, the judges do. Joshua certainly does. Um, uh, really, there's a struggle going on here between fear and faith. And fear is uh, fixed on the eyes, how we see things, what we're afraid of losing, how things typically go. And it operates in a very human-centered and no-God-involved atheistic spirit. And faith is always attributed to, no, God has done this before and God's going to do this again. God's revealed this is what he's calling us to do. And so we've got to move no matter how it looks. And so throughout Joshua and Judges, you're going to see God doing things 
to require people to fix their eyes on him and have faith and move forward. And sometimes that's going to be by doing things in very strange ways, whether we see that in Joshua with the people of God marching around the city of Jericho once a day for six days and then seven times on the seventh day and blasting trumpets and shouting and that being the mechanism that brings down the wall. Or you're going to have in Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8 with the Gideon story when Gideon is made to be this mighty warrior when he's obviously terrified and he gets this huge army together and God says, nope, too big, nope, still too big. And he ends up picking 300 men who lick water like a dog. <laughs> and all of these things go to show that God is the one who's the deliverer. It's not the human deliverer. And so there's this kind of epic tension between fear and faith. And the highlights of these books are when people trust God. And they don't do so perfectly and they don't do so immediately. But if you read Hebrews chapter 11 and you recount all of the different names that are named there, the feature, the key feature of these people is not their virtue. It is not the actual success that was brought about. It was the fact that they eventually and finally engaged with faith towards God and were used by God to bring about God's purpose. And so this is a theme that you're going to follow through Joshua and Judges. The next thing that we notice from Joshua, which I really think is cool, is how God in every generation um, reminds his people that they belong to him. And so we see that in the deliverance of the wilderness generation through the parting of the Red Sea. And then that gets replayed in chapter 3 of Joshua, crossing the Jordan. And so you have a, a similar experience where the waters are held up as the Ark of the Covenant is carried into the waters and the, the, the priests hold the Ark there in the midst of the water until everybody safely passes. And New Testament writers, especially Peter, are going to attribute this backwards to the flood and God's judgment and salvation of Noah and then forward to uh, water baptism and uh, being baptized into Christ, his death and resurrection. And so you get this kind of um, next generation um, believer's baptism that is put on display there. And then in chapter four, we get the 12 stones where each of the tribes are meant to pick a stone and, and uh, set these stones up as a stone of remembrance. And it's after this that the covenant is kind of reestablished. The generation, uh, the children, the wilderness generation's children who are now under the leadership of Joshua, are, all the males are circumcised in chapter five. This is uh, when the manna is stopped, which we read on Sunday. And then Joshua has this encounter with the commander of the Lord's army. And so you get this retelling of all the things that God has done in a transition from God interacting with one people one way to another people another way. And so you get both a lot of transition and then a lot of uh, confirmation of the things that God has already described. Chapter 6 gives us the, the Jericho story and, uh, and the deliverance through Rahab and then how Joshua becomes just feared and famous everywhere and the conquest begins. But right away, as that, as that first victory at Jericho gives the people confidence, there's also the sin of Achan, where Achan takes the devoted things and decides to keep some of those things for himself. Now, you can't blame him. We're talking about heavy gold bar. I mean, this is like, I think it'd be hard for any of us to go, no, let's just toss that in the fire or like bring that to the temple and give it to God, whatever the specific instructions were. But he keeps some of those things, a coat for himself and some wealth. Um, but it's also bringing about this this uh, element, this kind of component part of individual sin and uh, community or communal impact. And so Achan does something evil, and then it results in the Lord opposing the whole group of Israel. And so instead of them easily defeating Ai, which they assumed they would, and they even went in with a smaller army, they're defeated and it isn't until Joshua seeks the Lord to find out why this is happening. And so you see how one person's unbelief and disobedience creates 
downfall for the whole community. And then in his judgment, it ends up being Achan and his whole household that suffer. And that can be really hard for our sense of justice because we, we live in a very individualistic society where we feel like uh, justice is only justice when it's specifically and uniquely and individually doled out and that it's unfair for anybody else to suffer as a result of somebody else's failure. But that's also just not the world we live in. I mean, it's tragic, but um, children oftentimes suffer greatly because of their parents' mistakes. And even grandparents, multi-generational impacts. And when a group of um, a nation or a community do something evil, it's going to have negative repercussions for everyone in that community, um, just as a consequence, a direct consequence of the very thing that they're doing. And so this is true in terms of immediate consequence for wrongdoing, but it's also true for the judgment of God against the people and the individual role of every single person. And this becomes difficult for us because there's an individualism and a communalism that is distinct between our experience and that of the Old Testament uh, counterpart. Yeah, and something that like really sticks out to me is like there. This is the first city they just came in. They just saw the waters pile up back at, at the city of Adam, and and now we have Achan taking. He's like, man, I'm gonna get rich with this stuff, and and that's the like you know, but but the back to the individualistic versus like the communal aspect is like, I think a lot of people in maybe my generation, maybe your generation and probably the generations behind because we're so individualistic, think that our sin doesn't affect other people. Right. Like we're just, oh, it's my sin and it's mine to like deal with secretly over here when actually like it is a communal thing. Like sanctification happens in a larger setting, also individually, but like in a larger setting. And one of the things that um, we're talking about in the worship team right now is like, you know, we're, we're, on stage not to be rock stars but feet washers Mm -hmm. and so we we go back to john 13 where he's washing the feet of these people or you know of his of his disciples and he says blessed are you if you know these things and you do them but Mm -hmm. the trick is like with you read it with western eyes you're like oh you like just me if i do these things i'm gonna get blessed but he's saying y'all right blessed are y'all if y'all know these things and y'all do them it's a communal blessing to live and exist among people who serve each other like Jesus. Right. Yeah. That's it's I I think sometimes when I see those those um those plural pronouns, because they are buried in English because we have you and you, I think we need we need the English southern version where everything is y'all. Or we could get like the English northern version and make it yuns or use guys or whatever you want to add, but <laughs> it would be helpful to know uh, when the scriptures are directing to a person or to a people, but most of the time most of the time it is to a people. And and you will experience this in any environment where, and, I, and let's just go off on a little excursion here for a second, but one of the things I love hearing about new people visiting Christ Church that they'll say, and I love hearing this because it's completely out of our control, is that it's such a welcoming and friendly environment. And that means the majority of people are warm and welcoming, and that's what's creating that environment. It's great if you have a person, if you're, if the head of your greeters is warm, awesome. But like you're not going to have an environment that's warm unless everybody's doing that. And so like that's what this is always after. And so you're going to get um, this, this juxtaposition of Rahab, the one um, Canaanite from Jericho, a prostitute of all people, who feared God and participated in the purposes of God and therefore brought salvation to her and her whole household right next to Achan, who was a clan leader 
and through one act of disobedience brought judgment upon his whole, whole household. And what's the difference there is what Achan saw with his eyes and decided to not have the fear of the Lord and, and versus Rahab, who understood what God was doing and aligned herself with the purposes of God. And by faith, there was salvation over one household and destruction over the other. And so these things are meant to show us, yes, individual decisions and sins are going to have an impact on other people, whether you acknowledge it or not. But also, it's one act of faith can bring blessing to an entire family. And so I love that these two things are put closely together. And we're going to see Rahab pop up one more time as we briefly dabble in Ruth um, before we're done today. So these are some of the things that you'll see. And I can't, I can't, I wish I could make connections in 10 places to where this pops up in the rest of Joshua and Judges, but you probably saw them. And so as you're reading, continue to look for the way these, these things um, are connected. So one of the things that really stood out to me was how God um, condemned Achan and his family because Achan took things that God said he could not have. And then right after Achan was destroyed, God sent the people into Ai again for the second time. And there was some strategy there. And so they baited them out, brought them out, ambushed them and defeated them. But then God said, okay, now you can have all the plunder you want. And I read that and I was like, well, <laughs> wait, you just destroyed Achan and his family for doing something in one city. And now you're telling everyone they can do that same thing in the next city. And like that, that, that kind of felt to me like arbitrary, like, well, what was that all about? But again, you're getting, okay, I don't, there's things that are above our pay grade. God knows things that we do not know. And it's not incumbent upon us to judge God by our standards, but instead for us to dispose ourselves towards obedience to God. And so if God says, in this city, everything's off limits, but in this city, you can keep the things for yourself, then that's the rule. And the question is, are you going to trust God and obey God, or are you going to decide to make things up for yourself? And that kind of reminded me of like the tithe, like the first city that they took was mm-hmm. holy unto God. Like, don't yep. touch anything in this because this is my city. Yes. And then like, you know, then have at it afterwards. Yeah, but. that's true. And we see that. That's a great insight. And it was actually, the phrase there is the devoted things. And devoted has to do with being set apart or being for a particular purpose. And we, we've seen that. We haven't really traced this particular theme in the podcast so far, but um, the firstborn the whole concept of the firstborn is the devoted. So every first male that uh, is born is devoted to the Lord and must therefore be redeemed, right? And so you have to you have to make an offering to, for your firstborn son that you don't have to make for every, all of your subsequent children. And then again, God decides to take for himself from the nation of Israel, the tribe of the Levites as a firstborn. Like this is in the place of all y'all's firstborn, I'm taking the Levites for myself and they're not going to have an inheritance. They're going to minister, do the ministry uh, between God and the people. And then you're going to see that throughout the first fruits author offering and a bunch of the laws in the Old Testament that God is saying the first is going to be mine. And so that fits right into that motif that this first city that you're going to overtake, everything that comes out of there gets devoted to the Lord. And that's not for you to keep. And then once the Lord's had his first uh, fruits, essentially, now everything else is available to you, except obviously the things that God specifically says are not to be had. So that's that's awesome. That's a really good insight. Um, the middle section, oh, I want to talk about chapter 10 uh, a little bit. So we talked about the Gibeonite um, deception on Sunday and the, just how that kind of fit into the, the overall book. Um, and then right after that in chapter 10 is where the, the uh, armies north of Gibeon hear that the Gibeonites are now subjected to the Israelites, and so they have this massive clash, and it's in that battle between those other kings that uh, Joshua c- commands, essentially, the sun to stand still, 
and and the sun stands still and the moon hangs in the sky and for about a day it says there's light and a couple things struck me obviously that is like a supernatural phenomenon uh, of which the world has never seen and never shall see again and it shows god's power over um, creation Um, so we we as a scientific generation we assume that everything that is must happen all the time and so um, one of the reasons a lot of humanistic um, people don't believe in the bible is because it's full of miracles like talking snakes and donkeys and the sun standing still and because that can't happen presupposition it didn't happen and so this is all false and myths but if this is divine revelation and god can do that and god did do that then there's no reason why we can't accept that it is exactly what happened and so if it is what happened and that's the presumption i'm moving forward on why did it happen and what does it tell us about this i think the first thing is um that god's listening to joshua and whatever joshua asks for that's in keeping with the purposes of god god does and this is the same thing jesus says in John chapter 15, this is the same thing that John writes in 1 John, the end of 1 John. Listen, if you ask anything in Christ's name, you got it. And so if you are fulfilling the purpose of God with your life, if you are if you are completely devoted and you are after doing whatever it is that God wants, there's like no limit to what he will do to support and provide for the very things that you need. And Joshua had that confidence and God responded to that faith-filled confidence by doing the thing that Joshua Uh, essentially asked by commanding the sun to stand still. I also think it's interesting to note that God in many, many different ways has uh, conquered the enemies of Israel. So you're going to see as we continue to read through the Old Testament, God sends hornets and God sends hailstones and God confuses armies to destroy each other and God blinds commanders and leads them to a foreign city. And like there's all kinds of ways, so many variety of ways that God defeats physically the enemies of his people. And yet it's interesting in this instance that Joshua, what he sees, uh, perceives as the need is not hornets or hailstones or blindness or confusion. I just need more time. <laughs> just give me a few extra hours and I will, I will put these people to the sword. And so there's again that picture of a, a sovereign, all-powerful God who rules and reigns over the very creation that we're existing on working with a group of people who are committed to his ways and in obedience fulfilling his purposes and that is that tension between god's sovereignty and human agency just flows through the entire book and we in our kind of western post-reformation kind of uh, post-calvinist perspective on things we're always trying to resolve the sovereignty of god and human responsibility and some people absolve humans of their responsibility and come fall into fatalism or determinism because god's sovereign is going to do whatever he wants so we're just along for the ride and i hope i'm on the good side not the bad side and we'll see or we put all the accent on human responsibility in a way to defend god from ever having to apparently have done something that doesn't fit our standards of what he should do and neither are the case And so God does different things in different ways in different generations, but he's always accomplishing his purposes and his purposes are most clearly seen in the person of Jesus. And so we go back to Joshua and Joshua is a type of savior, a type of rescuer, a type of redeemer. And and the Canaanites were a type of opposition. They were a type of the enemy. They were a type of the seed of the serpent. They were the the rebellious, hard-hardened, unbelieving, outside of the purposes of God, representing idolatry and everything that this world has to offer. And so this, in this particular instance, that's what this looked like. And so this is a demonstration of the faithfulness of Joshua and the divine providence 
of Almighty God. And so it's, it should stand out to you, Joshua chapter 10. And you can see also, if you're reading this in a paper Bible, that there's a little inset there, which means in Hebrew it's a poem, and it's one that's supposed to be commemorating the, the divine intervention and salvation of God. So then after that, we get just the re, uh, an account of multiple victories. Um, all of chapter 11, war, 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 and then rest. And then chapter 12, we recount Moses' victories and Joshua's victories and the 31 kings that they subdued between the two of them on the, on the east side of the Jordan and then the west side of the Jordan. And then in chapter 13, um, Joshua, being old, uh, goes through the distribution of the conquered land uh, and lists the land that remained unconquered. And then we get the narrative about um, Caleb and his heritage in Joshua 14, which I love because this is one of my favorite passages of scripture because Caleb's like, listen, I've been doing this whole thing. I'm old, but I don't have an ounce less strength than I ever did. And so this is this is where he chooses, I believe, Hebron, and he, he gets uh, the land and finally experiences some rest from war. And so that's super rewarding. If you've been following the story, you're a, definitely a big fan of Caleb and love seeing that he gets to enjoy seeing what he spied out uh, so many decades ago, and that's really exciting. And then you get uh, chapter 15, you get um, a duo. There's chapter 15 of Joshua and chapter 1 of Judges both have the story about um, Caleb and Axal and Othniel, who becomes the first judge, and the giving of the upper and lower springs. And so those are like verbatim copied uh, from Joshua and Judges, if you go back and read those two. And obviously they hook together, those two. I mean, Othniel is a central fig- figure as the first judge of the book of Judges. And he's also the one of Caleb's tribe who uh, did what Caleb asks and receives Oxal, Caleb's daughter, as uh, a wife. And then because of her kind of position, she asks for this particular part of land. And so those springs are then attributed to them. Yeah, and if we could go back a sec to chapter 14... Uh, Caleb's faith is like part of his character Mm -hmm. because he's like, Hey, give me this hill country because there's still giants that I'm going to slay. over Yes. Like I, I, the Lord, my God will like send me in there and we're going to eradicate these guys. Mm -hmm. And the dude's 80. (laughs) He's 80 years old. I cannot imagine an 80 year old like Caleb just cruising in like, yeah, I'm still as strong as I was when I was young and I went out to war. Yep. And like, that was his his whole motive. And he's just like, still so faith filled. Like back when they spied out the land, he was like, guys, let's go take him. We got this. Me and Joshua, like, we're going to go take him with the Lord. We can do anything with the Lord. And now here he is again. Yep saying, oh, I can take, like, the Lord's going to deliver these guys into my hands again. Just so faith-filled. It's just like, I feel like that's just so worth commenting on. And we we uh, we, we kind of touched on that a little bit in the Numbers um, podcast. We were talking about the spirit that's in Caleb. The reason why God said everyone's going to die in the wilderness except Joshua and Caleb is because in Caleb there's a different spirit. And so we were tracking that spirit, that, that spiritual alignment with the purposes of God, and Caleb has faithfully demonstrated that. And then there's two other things I want to point out. One is about... Uh, Moses and his death, and then the other is about the whole concept of the seed of the serpent. So Moses, there's this kind of tragic, exciting slash tragic uh, statement about the death of Moses. He was 120 years old, and this is when essentially God killed him because it said that his eyes were still strong and his strength was still uh, whole. This is this is not an old guy who's about to die. I mean, he's old, but he is like he's not on he's not in hospice care. Okay, this is he is like. Advanced in years, but in, in all physical ways, able to keep moving forward. And yet he died and the Lord took him and they don't know where he's buried. And so this is a, a picture of like God's miraculous uh, provision and, and supernatural strength that he receives to fulfill God's purpose. 
but then also a specific act of judgment against Moses, who is detained and not able to enter into the promised land uh, because he made himself equal with God at the the rock of Meribah, where he struck the rock twice and spoke on behalf of God saying, we, and we talked about that a little bit. Uh, whereas Jesus in John chapter 3 and throughout the Gospels talks about himself and God in that um, second person pl- um, plural pronoun we. And that's part of the reason that the Jews continue to want to stone him is because he's blaspheming, making himself equal with God. And so you get this picture of strength. And so Joshua had the strength. Caleb had the strength. Moses had the strength. And yet there's both reward and judgment. And so those those things are kind of like set out there for us to observe. And then the other thing that you mentioned about Caleb recognizing the giants that are in the land. This is a little quandary. No one asked this question, but you'll remember in Genesis chapter 6, now the Nephilim were in the land at that time and also afterward. Remember that phrase? And you're like, wait a second. The Nephilim, the great men of renown, the mighty warriors, the Rephaim, the sons of Anak, these are all different ways of talking about the same like superhuman group of people who were the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men who took any of that they willed. There's obviously a lot of confusion and a variety of belief about what that means. But how in the world did God have a worldwide flood and that that essentially destroying the Nephilim and then we get the Nephilim again in Canaan? Anybody ever wonder about that, right? Yeah, so the question is, where did that come from? Now, there's a number of different Jewish answers. So in the Mishnah, the Talmud, there's going to be some explanations. And I don't know if you guys saw, um, what was the name? What was the title of the Noah movie? Um, that came out several years ago. It was like a uh, remake. I'm, I'm super detached from movies. Okay, no so idea. there was a movie about the flood, and um, and it was kind of, it was kind of like depicting the the flood narrative in kind of like a super fantastical way. There was the Watchers, and there were these like rock giants and uh, all this kind of stuff. But um, in the story, um, Tubal Cain, the figure, the person portraying Tubal Cain, snuck onto the ark. And so there was not just Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their wives, eight people in total. Instead, that Tubal Cain was there, and this was kind of like the Jewish explanation of where the the next Rephaim or the sons of Anak came from. And that is in some ancient Jewish literature as an explanation for this, but that is not in the biblical account. Is it Noah from 2014? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah, and that's like Noah Chomsky or one of those, uh, was he the director of that? Uh, Darren Aron. Aronofsky? Oh, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, sounds... Okay. But I've seen pictures of the rock creatures and everything. Yeah, yeah, about. that's probably it. Sorry, I'm not up to snuff on my um, 2014 movies, but I remember thinking, like, wait, that didn't happen. And then I found out later, no, that actually was uh, an interpretation to explain the the reason why um, the um, the Nephilim were still in the land, or the Rephaim, or the giants. It gets translated in different ways, but it's the same Hebrew word. Now, here's the, the, the answer is in the tension between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So part of the reason, part of the justification for the destruction of the Canaanites was the intermingling of the seed of the serpent. And so this concept that there's this, you know, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. There's a creation narrative that tells the story of the creation of the earth, but there is not a creation narrative that tells the story of the creation of the heavens and what was happening in the supernatural realm. But throughout the Old Testament, you get these little pieces and parts that are dropped in there as everybody kind of knows this oral tradition of there's this heavenly realm of like rebellious or even purposefully created um, evil beings that are carrying out God's purposes of destruction, whereas God's not performing evil himself. 
And so this is kind of hard for us to, in our Western mind to have a category for. But for instance, Job, which we're going to get to, God's having this council with all of these um, kind of divine creatures and the Satan, the, the adversary is there. And he's essentially mocking God that's saying the only reason Job worships you is be- because he's, you're, you're hooking him up. He's wealthy. And so of course he's going to worship you. But God's the one that provokes that argument. He goes, check out my servant Job over here. He's like bragging on Job to this heavenly court. And of course, the tension that's created there in Job is that when bad things happen, sometimes you don't know why they happen and they don't necessarily have to do with you doing something wrong. And that's what all of these categories and talks throughout Job are about. Job, just say you did something wrong and let this end. This is obviously your fault. So this is like a human limited human perspective, but we know as the reader, no, that's not what's going on here. Job is that God is actually allowing Job to suffer, to vindicate God's worthiness to be worshiped and the purity of Job's faith and the devil's involved in that. And the devil's like right up there at God's conference table saying, okay, let me do this. Let me do this. Now he's limited. He can only do what God says he can do. And God puts limits on what he can do. And so we get this picture. And then eventually, obviously God and Job resolve in this conversation in the latter chapters. But the picture here is that there's all kinds of stuff that's going on in the supernatural realm that we don't understand, but that is infiltrating the natural realm. And so you have this dark spirit that's infiltrating the snake, the serpent, tempting humankind, wanting to bring about the destruction of humankind and the purposes of God and shaming God and being opposed to what God's doing. And these prophecies about how God's going to destroy all of his enemies, um, earthly and otherwise. And then you get into this land of Canaan and Canaan is... uh, built upon what is basically um, a super race of people who are aligned with the powers of darkness and breeding for themselves an army of of large, powerful uh, men who are brutalizing women and children and who are creating power structures and civil governments that are uh, insanely destructive and they're sacrificing their children to false gods and they're throwing kids in the fire. And I mean, we talked about this in one of the podcasts, but Canaan was such a horrifically evil place and you're meant to connect the outside influence of God's spiritual enemies and the infiltration of false gods in the land of Canaan to the activities that are taking place there and part of the justification for God's fulfillment of his promise in Genesis 3:15 that the seed of the woman so there's going to be a a descendant who by faith is going to trust God not not distrust and disobey but trust and obey and carry out God's purpose of destruction against the enemy of God. So these things are typified here, and so they involve humans, but they're ultimately expressed in the in the death of Jesus, where he destroys God's enemy by dying in himself. Instead of waging war and bringing death and destruction to other humans, he dies in place of humans, so that by faith we can be made alive with him and have victory over our actual enemy. But in Joshua... It's the Canaanites who are under the power of the evil one. And so the, the expressed um, existence of the sons of Anak or the Amalekites or the Nephilim or the Rephaim or whatever words you want to use to describe them is showing like the powers of darkness are well at work and in control of this land of Canaan and they must be destroyed. And I bring that up because you mentioned Caleb's like, we are not done until they are dead. And he's like, let me go get them. He's like a pit bull on a leash. And um, so it's a picture of God's faithfulness and blessing upon Caleb, got the fulfillment of God's purposes in Joshua, but it's also showing, hey, these Canaanites are a, a, a half-blood mixture of a concoction of spiritual evil 
um, through the enemies of God um, collaborating with humankind. And that's where all sorcery comes from and necromancy comes from. This is where all spells come from and evil incantations. And this is part of what Balaam was into and his destruction and the Moabites and the Midianites and all of these groups are very much um, aligned with the powers of darkness. And so anytime anybody puts their trust in God, Rahab, you see God moving to bring salvation to them and theirs. But for the most part, these are evil places that need to be entirely destroyed. And even their possessions are under this curse. And so they need to be destroyed from time to time. And so you got to keep that in your thinking. Um, and you get that on display with the kind of zeal that Caleb has to see this destruction brought to pass. So that's chapter 14. And then moving forward, there's a whole lot of um, discussion about the allotments of land. And that's going to matter too in the future, especially when you get into the battles of First Kings, Second or Second Kings primarily, when um, the southern and northern tribes have a civil war, and there's there's constant fighting about who has what land, and where these different things take place. And so these old descriptions of where the land is initially set and the boundaries are created um, is a justification for one set of perspective on that later um, dilemma. And so you're going to get in chapter 18. Um, Joshua sends out three, three spies from each tribe to go infiltrate the land and to spy it out and then to cast lots for who gets to receive um, each of the remaining lands. And then there's some hesitancy on the northern tribes to actually do what they were supposed to do. And so that instead of going all the way to the border and taking those places over, they kind of settle in the southernmost part of the northern section of Israel and they just stop. And so this is another part of that residual problem that we see happening in Joshua. Whereas Joshua is mostly a high point in the Old Testament story, there are those little seeds um, of things not going the way that they should. And so Joshua 19, 20, we get the final divisions of the land and the designations of the cities of refuge, which I would love to have just a podcast just talking about the cities of refuge. Um, That is way too complicated for us to get into, but there is an incredible... uh, tapestry of meaning and purpose that goes into that that I would love to get into at some point so maybe we'll be able to devote a whole podcast to that but I'm not going to dabble that'll be a that'll be a problem (laughs) if we start dabbling in cities of refuge um Joshua 21 we get the 13 towns of the Levites by clan and how they're going to all the different areas they don't have land of their own but they're going to set up around the cities and represent the people before God and then we get that that epic ending of chapter 21, 43 to 45, where not one of God's promises had failed, but were fulfilled. And then Joshua kind of ends with 24, where he says, as for me and my house, and then you get the death of Joshua and Eleazar. And so that next generation falls by the wayside. But in the midst of that, in 22, there's that, um, the return of the East dwelling tribes. So you remember that Two and a half tribes asked Moses if they could not go into the land of promise, but because they were keepers of sheep, if they could have the plains on the east side of the Jordan. And Moses says, you can, but only if you will leave all your women and children and send all of your fighting men across the Jordan to help your um, tribesmen, your fellow Israelites to overtake their land. And then once that land is established, then you can go back to your wives and children. And so they do that. And when they do that, they cross over the Jordan And then they build an altar to the Lord, and immediately the west of the Jordan tribes think that they have turned to a false god. And so they immediately go over there to destroy them. And there's this civil war that almost happens when, in fact, it was just confusion. And the 
the eastern dwelling tribes go, no, 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 no. We just didn't want any of our descendants to forget. And so we erected this, this altar of memory, but we're not going to sacrifice on it. We know that's not what God said. And so you see like at the end of Joshua, there's almost a civil war. And so I bring this up because a lot of the things that are about to happen in Judges are like a dark retelling of the themes we saw in Joshua. And jo- Judges ends with a brutal, vicious civil war that's based in, in pride and great evil. And here we have in Joshua kind of like a reflection of that. The civil war almost happened because of zeal for God's law. And you're going to get again and again and again throughout Joshua a, a reading of God's words. And exactly as I told you, and a description of how Joshua did exactly to the word what Moses had said. So there's this high commitment to the, the revelation of God and to fulfilling God's purposes in God's specific way. And even here, the reason they're going to go attack these uh, Eastern dwelling tribes is because they've done this thing that God said not to, but it was a mistake. It was, they, they misunderstood what was going on. And so you get this near miss. Oh, it almost went super bad, but it turns out everything was fine. And that's kind of where Joshua ends. And then you get into judges and you're going to start to see, um, like we talked about on Sunday, how like, okay, all that generation and all the elders that outlived them passed away. And then another generation grew up who did not know the Lord or the works that he had done. So number one, enormous parenting fail. <laughs> if a whole generation is able to be raised by a group who knew God and the works he had done, and yet they're raised to not know, because this is what the scriptures tell us, Deuteronomy 6, you're supposed to tell your kids this when you're getting up and going down and when you're walking on the path and you're supposed to write it on your forehead and on your doorposts and everywhere. This... Everybody should know these stories. The feasts, every annual feast is to reflect on what God did. And so the next generation should know the Lord and know the works of the Lord. And so therein lies the failure um, as we turn over to the book of Judges. Yeah, and it's just like even at the beginning of Joshua, they get the 12 stones from out of the river. Yep. God's like, make this monument so you don't forget. Mm -hmm. Don't forget about all this stuff that it did. Yep. And uh, right before we go into Judges in uh, Joshua 24, 30, uh, sorry, 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. So like all those people that knew and saw the things, they're still serving the Lord based on what they saw mm-hmm. with their own eyes. And then now we get to the everybody did what was right in their own eyes phase. Right. Yeah. The total forgetting. Yeah. Even though those monuments are still there. Presumably the altar's there, the stones are there, and there's stones, I mean, I think it says specifically that no no iron um, tool should be used on them. So this, there's like some really specifics. They need to be covered in plaster and then have the law written on top of them and um, the Ten Commandments, essentially. And so like these relics still remain, but the testimony of them from generation to generation did not. So um, one question that we did get from Joshua, which is going to come back up in, in connection in Judges was uh, in Joshua 2016, where it mentions 700 select troops that were left-handed. And so this is the second time in Joshua where we see someone being called out as being left-handed. And someone asked me if that's significant. And it actually is significant because these were Benjaminites. And I should call them Benjamites. It doesn't seem natural, but that's how the text translates it, Benjamites. But Benjaminites, however you want to say it, they were the of the tribe of Benjamin. So Benjamin, Ben-Jamin, means son of my right hand. So the, the detail of Benjaminites being left-handed is something special. But left-handed people make up about 10% of the human population. I don't know if you know that or not. So 
Southpaws are, are uh, rare and unique. But there is major advantage in warfare for being left-handed. And so to be left-handed was to be seen as uh, specially chosen for war. So this is the case for baseball players, right? If you can pitch left-handed, you have an advantage over a majority of right-handed batters. So there's some ways in which being left-handed is actually to your advantage. And left-handedness is rare and also seen as an advantage. Now, this matters because when you're going to get to judges and we get back to that civil war, guess what tribe is at the very center of the civil war through their pride and is nearly completely exterminated in chapter 20? And that is the tribe of Benjamin. And what are they said to have that nobody else has is they have a whole troop of left-handed armies uh, that can throw a sling at a hare and not miss. And so you're saying you can kill a rabbit with your left hand. These are skilled warriors. Now, this had become their downfall because in their pride, they assumed that they were superior to their counterparts. And so when you get into the chapters that we did not cover on Sunday of Judges 19, 20, and 21, uh, the Benjamites or Benjaminites, they refused to acknowledge the evil that took place in Gilead. And so we're going to talk about this in a second. But yes, left-handedness is um, a distinct feature and and uh, attribute for um, those of military persuasion. You also immediately think of Ehud. So one of the first judges, Ehud is said to be left-handed, and he was the one who did a sneak attack on Eglon, the king of the Moabites, I believe, who was um, oppressing Israel. And so he shows up with a a, um, tribute to bring to the king, and so they all bring their tribute, and they leave. Now, it says that he has strapped a small sword on the inside of his right thigh so that when you're checked for weapons you would be looking on someone's left hip because most people are right-handed and they would keep their sword on the outside of their belt and so if you come in with a sword on your right thigh and the thigh is the most intimate part of in ancient near eastern people the inside of the thigh is essentially the groin you did not touch anybody from the inside of the knee up that was off limits and in fact you'll recall when promises were made remember when the promise was made for uh, Abraham to send his servant to find a wife for his son. Yep, it says, put your hand on the inside of my thigh. You're like, whoa, this just got weird, right? But the, the picture there is you are making me like an intimate, solemn promise. And so like that was like what was done. So you're never going to like pat somebody down on the inside of their thigh. And so he sneaks in this dagger and um, then he goes back and says, hey, I've got a message from God, you know, like, say hello to my little friend. <laughs> and he stabs the sword <laughs> into him and says Eglon was a fat man. And, and so the fat closed over the, the sword and the handle and he left the sword and it says the dung spilled out. And so there's a really gross descriptive um, passage that talks about the, the assassination of Eglon. And then um, Ehud's able to escape because they're in the secret upper chamber where he's telling him this message from God. And when his servants go in there to check on him, they smell the dung and they're thinking he's gone uh, number two up there and he just needs a minute to himself. And then they wait a really, really long time because it takes some people a long time to go number two. And then when they're too embarrassed any longer, they break the door down and find him dead. And one of the uh, things I've learned in my original language study is like they actually say he's covering his feet. Right. So it's like, oh, yeah, his pants are down. His pants are down. Yeah, that's the euphemism. Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> yeah, I think it's so funny. Now, you probably could tell me this because you know more Hebrew than I do, but I believe from previous study that the way in which you would say that someone is left-handed is you would actually say they are weak in the right hand. 
I don't I don't know for sure, but like that would remind me of like Leah. She was weak in the eyes. Yes, it might be. I, I could look into it. Yeah, just I check that out because I believe that's what it actually says. And some people um, believe that Ehud was actually um, disabled, like he had a withered right hand, so he wasn't naturally left-handed, which would have made him not a threat to Eglon. So if you if somebody comes in and their right hand's all shriveled up, like shriveled up then they're thinking, you know, this is a this is a disabled person. They're of no threat to me. And so part of the reason why he was able to sneak in was not just that he was primarily left-handed, but that he was disabled in his right hand. And so they're taking that um, literally, whereas most of the time it's used figuratively. Right. And then why would you clear out your whole space of it with everybody and have an enemy in your exactly. room, right? If, unless they were not a threat at all. Right. So. so that's part of the thing there is maybe this euphemism was descriptive of an actual disability in Ehud's case. Um, but when you get into the description of these um, warriors, being left-handed was um, a military advantage. So great, great insight. Thanks for that question. So let's look at, um, let's look at kind of judges now. Um, as a whole, and then we'll see some comparisons and some contrast between Joshua and Judges. As I mentioned Sunday, Joshua's kind of like the high point in the narrative to date, and then Judges very quickly becomes uh, the low point. And so we get to chapter one, and we get this uh, repeated phrase that the different tribes did not drive out the inhabitants. And so the very thing they were sent to do, they did not do, and instead they kept many of them uh, as forced labor and slavery which turned out to be the the downfall because the influence of their false gods and the work of the seed of the serpent um, got in there and um, ultimately corrupted their faith and faithfulness towards God. And so chapter two, we get that infamous phrase we've already been kind of referencing and paraphrasing that after this other generation died, those who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And so that's a direct um, contradiction, a contrast to what we read in Joshua about how Joshua ended, Judges begins with just unbelief and a lack of knowledge. And so they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. This is chapter 2 and verse 12. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. They bowed down to them, uh, and they provoked the Lord to anger. There's a lot of um, uh, adultery terminology that's in here. Um, you're going to get it with the verb hoard after them, but in I believe in the original language, as my commentaries have said, there's a lot more um, like sexually provocative terminology that's like in this kind of motif. And we talked about that last week a little bit of how the covenant of God is seen as a marriage and idolatry is perceived as adultery. And you're going to get that big time when you get to Ezekiel. He highlights that in ways that are very graphic. And there's also another chapter in Ezekiel that you wouldn't want to let your middle school students read because of the descriptions there. Um, but this is kind of this whole little section here in chapter two um, shows like they were unfaithful to the Lord and they were plundered. They couldn't withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them. And it was against them for harm as that Lord had warned and as he had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Um, then the the bright point and the setup for judges is verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges. That's a difficult word um, in our English. It's judges, but it really could be translated leaders or rescuers. Um, only a couple of the quote unquote judges actually judged. Um, and you're going to get 12 named judges in the book of judges. And that number 12 obviously is important because it shows the fullness and a representation of a period of time or a group of people. And then Samuel, uh, Eli and Samuel are said to be judges when you get to 1 Samuel, but they're not included in the book of Judges. 
And Samuel is part of Samuel and the Eli Samuel story really creates a hinge point between the era of the judges and the era of the kings. And so um, for all purposes, the judges are the 12 that are referenced there. And again, I did do a series on this called Unlikely Heroes, which you can find on our website if you want more information. Um, I did, I think, six of the 12 of them. Um, and one of my favorites, uh, Shamgar, got a message on Shamgar that it's one of my personal favorites. I've got to preach it a couple times and I think it's super great. Um, the thing that stands out to me in that section was despite the fact that even after the Lord raised up judges and delivered the people from their enemies, they would turn away from the Lord. And it says, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So here you have a people who's completely rejected God and he still has compassion towards them. And their suffering is self-made. And yet even in the midst of their self-made suffering, um, they experience God's compassion and things just go worse and worse and worse. Verse 19 says, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And so then you get into the judges, uh, Othniel, Ehud, who we just talked a little bit about, Shamgar, who gets one verse dedicated to himself and then shows up in Deborah's song. And then the Deborah and Barak story, I would love to, I got to preach this, this, I did, I do have a sermon on this one, but I love this um, story because Deborah is the judge and she's a singer songwriter and she's married and um, she's raised up by God, but she's not a military leader. And so when God speaks to her and has raised her up as the leader of Israel, she calls to Barak um, to be the commander of God's armies. And so Barak does this thing where she says she commands him essentially as the prophet of God, as the leader, raised up leader of God to go and to to fight. And Barak says, if you go with me, I will go. If you do not go with me, I will not go. Now, this is that same phrase that you get with with um, Moses and God in the wilderness, where Moses is saying, unless you lead us up out of here, I'm not going. But here, Barak, this is seen as a lack of faith in Barak. And so he's putting Deborah in the place of God and basically saying, I don't trust you. And if you want me to do what you say, you're going to put your neck on the line also. Do you see that lack of faith there? And so there's this, another expression, and we're going to see this again and again and again. Judges is so convoluted that it's a mixture of good in the wrong way. And so this is going to matter when we get to Jephthah, because again and again and again, we get this uh, calls to be uh, dedicated to the Lord and to give offerings to the Lord and to give sacrifices to the Lord. And then Jephthah offers, quote unquote, whatever comes out of his gate first, and it ends up being his daughter. And he makes good on this vow and sacrifices his daughter to Yahweh. Now, if you've been paying attention to this story at all, you know that God has no pleasure in you sacrificing your child. In fact, he's stated and condemned the practice of, of child sacrifice. And so you should be going, what are you doing? This is exactly wrong. But here, Jephthah, and it's important to recognize too, if you go back and you read this section, um, Jephthah like, recites long sections of God's word. Um, Jephthah is the son of a prostitute. And so he's rejected by his people. He gathers himself a rabble of criminals. He has a, a whole worthless men army. And then when his tribesmen uh, need help, they come to him because he's a, a mighty warrior. And so he's a rejected person, but he's a person of deep faith. He really understands the, the, the law of God, the word of God. He recounts back and forth um, to the foreign king um, 
no, what you're saying is totally untrue. He knows the story of, of what happened when God's people came through that land and how they didn't provoke that war, but how they, the Lord handed that, that war over. And he's like, listen, if you, if you, you've had 300 years to set this straight. Now, where are you at now saying that this land belongs to you? Wrong. And so here's a person, he really deeply understands a lot of the history of his people. And he's able to recite that from apparently memory. But then when it comes to this vow he's made, he's unable to discern between what is good and what is bad. And so that's part of the picture of judges is there's this convoluted chaos of a mixture of good things and bad things. Is it a good thing to make a vow and keep it? Absolutely. hundred percent it is. But is it a good thing to follow through on a thing that God hates just because you said you were going to do it? No, not at all. The question is then what is supposed to happen? Now, if you go back into the actual law, you're going to see like Numbers 30, if a man um, vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. That's 100% true. But there's also clear instruction about, hey, if you pledge a person and you want that person back, here's the price, here's the market price of redeeming that person. And where was Jephthah on that? And so there's a part of this that's totally missing. Jephthah could have easily paid a vow based on the value of his daughter by economic standards plus a 20% increase according to the law and redeemed her back from this vow. And instead, he carries through with the vow and she's supportive of that. And then you end up with this tradition of honoring the memory of Jephthah's daughter um, as a virgin who never married because she was sacrificed before being given in marriage. And I wonder if he, did he even need to make that vow? Like, was it just a, an emotional, like, Lord, if you give me victory... Like, then I'll, you know, sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house to you. But like, you know, and how many times do we do that as, mm-hmm. as humans where we're like, oh, Lord, if you just give me this one thing, we start like bartering mm-hmm. with God. Be like, Lord, uh, if you give me this, then I'll do this thing for you. Whereas like, you know, the thing that we get from the Bible, the, the, the motifs and the themes are like, Lord, you own everything in my life and your ways are the best ways. Right. So like, let me give you it all now. Yep. And then I'll be blessed. Like maybe he, if he was just, you know, not thinking that way, he, his daughter would have been fine. I don't know. That's exactly what you're supposed to notice. And I want to draw your attention to two passages. And actually I should look them up and give you chapter and verse, but I'm going to tell you in paraphrase form because here we are. Um, The first is when uh, Jacob has the dream of Jacob's ladder, right? And he, that's what he names Bethel, right? God is in this place. And he recognizes and thinks, he thinks because God appeared to him at this particular location that this is somehow like the gate of heaven. And so house of God, Bethel is what, that's that's what that means. And he has a vision of the ladder and the angels going up and down. Now this is, this is a typographic imagery of heaven and earth coming together. And so you have angelic beings making their way to earth and then going from earth back up. This is juxtaposed to the tower of Babel, which starts from the ground and goes up to God. Now you have God coming down with a ladder to humankind. And this is a picture of God's purpose and plan for Jacob, that God's going to bring about his purpose and plan through Jacob. And so God comes to Jacob, and it's not about the place. But Jacob makes it about the place, and he calls it Bethel. But after he has this experience, he starts making all these promises to God. This is actually the first place where a tithe is offered. Um, Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek after the... Um, the battle with the five kings, Kedoleomer and the, the kings and the rescue of Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. He refuses to um, um, take any money from the kings because he doesn't want them to say that he did it, that they, they, you know, they had something to do with this. But then he gives a, a tithe. But Jacob promises God a tithe if he will do the things he has done. 
And so this is a picture of Jacob who becomes Israel. Jacob's always trying to um, work out of self-benefit. This is, this is like born with a hand on the heel. This is what the name Jacob or James means, the trickster, deceiver. He's after something. He, he negotiates his brother's birthright for a bowl of stew. He tricks his father out of his blessing. He tricks his uncle out of great wealth with the speckles and the stripes. So here's a guy who's always trying to take control and look out for himself. And he's been chosen by God to be the conduit by which God's going to bring heaven to earth and to bring salvation to his people. And yet, even after receiving this from God, unsolicited and unprovoked, now he's making promises to God to make sure that it comes to pass. Do you see that? And so this is that whole concept of, I'm going to make an oath that's going to put God into my debt. And so this happens, and this is a, this happens a number of times, but the Jeff, the story is one of them. But it's also a foreshadowing of the worst one that's going to happen at the end of Judges. And that is when the, um, the situation in 19 happens. And then the Levite sends the body parts of his uh, assaulted, abused, and murdered concubine out to the 12 tribes. And they come and stand against the tribe of Benjamin, in which Gilead, this town where this happened, takes place. And instead of the Benjaminites agreeing with them about what God has done, or what, or what has been done that's evil and what God has said, and turning over the Gileadites, instead they stand together as a tribe and say, oh no, so they're, they're too self-confident and too cocky, and so they are going to now fight all the other tribes, right? And so what ends up happening is a civil war breaks out, and so God says Judah's going to go first, and Judah goes to fight, and, and the Benjaminites defeat Judah. And then you're going to see, all right, we're going to go to the Lord, we're going to ask the Lord what we've done, we're going to make sacrifice to the Lord. And so there's a purification, right? And then a second attempt at which they do the exact same thing that Joshua did at Ai. So if you go back and you compare those two stories, Joshua, remember he baits all the people out of Ai and then they ambush them from the side and then a group go in and burn the city. It's the same move that you're going to see happen in Gilead after the Benjamites think they have the upper hand. So they have one victory against Judah, just like the, the, res the military of Ai have a victory against Joshua and his army. And then in the second one, they bait them out of their town. They chase them away, ambush them, and then sack the town. So you see that there's a connection right there. But then what happens is the, the Israelites like essentially decimate the entire tribe of Benjamin. I mean decimate them to the point where there's 600 men left total and no women and no children. So this went from judgment to vengeance. And so there's that convoluted chaos again where you're going, okay, it's one thing to stand up for something that's right and to oppose something that's wrong. But now you just took what was supposed to be judgment and you've turned it into angry vengeance and you've almost destroyed one of God's total tribes, the son of my right hand. So what do they do? Well, they go, man, we got to give them daughters. But we all took a vow, a rash vow that we weren't going to give them daughters because of who they are and what they had done. And so what, what do they end up doing? It's, it's one of those things where it descends and devolves from one level of calamity to the next. And so in order to make good on their vow, they, they go, they ask the question, which one of these tribes or clans didn't go out to war with us? Oh, Jabesh didn't. Okay, let's go kill them and take all their virgins and give the virgins to the Benjaminites so that they can continue their line. Do you see this? And then there aren't enough. And so they need 200 more. And so in order to avoid breaking their vow, they let the, Benjamin, the remaining Benjaminites go steal women from Shiloh and take them for their wives. And that's how Judges ends. And you're going, man, Two wrongs doesn't make a right. Well, 10 wrongs doesn't make a right. 
but there's that same co- overcommitment to the value made at the detriment of all these other important values, and God's left completely out of the picture. There's no prayer, there's no asking, there's no seeking the Lord, there's just doing whatever seems right. And then that Judges ends with that same phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so Judges ends with almost one of the tribes completely decimated, and the only reason they're not is because of violence done against the women of other tribes. And so you ought to be thinking, this is awful. And then you get First Samuel, which we're starting to read now, which we'll talk about on Sunday, where God chooses a king for his people, but he's going to give them a king of their deserving, followed by a king after his own heart. And so of what tribe do we get first king Saul? He ends up being a Benjaminite. And where is he from? Gilead. So you're going to make these connections from book to book to book, and they're continuing to push the story of the problem of God seeking to influence and dwell with a people, and here's a people who keep going astray, and they know a little bit of what he's said and what he's done, but it doesn't carry generation by generation, and so it ends up devolving into chaos. And so what we need is a good king, and we're not going to get that king in Saul. We're going to end up getting that king in David, but David is not is a flawed man, and so you're going to expect the Second Samuel 7 um, prophecy about David's son and sitting forever on the throne. The prince of peace, Solomon, which is what that means, is going to be the king of all kings. And of course, he ends up doing the very thing that the law says that a king should not do in taking many horses and wives and so on and so forth. And that becomes his downfall. And then we watch the whole thing devolve again into the northern and southern tribes and the different kingdoms and the strife and the war and the exile, ultimately with prophetic um, call to repentance and return and what God would do. Ultimately, what God does is not within a nation, geoethnic Israel, but through geoethnic Israel to provide a Messiah to become the righteous king for the whole world, whoever would draw near to him by faith. And so this is where all this is going. And that's pretty much the book of Judges in a nutshell. Um, and let's just mention Ruth real quick as we, as we end. This will, this will wrap up. So the Ruth story um, interrupts the historic flow from Joshua to Judges to 1 Samuel in your Bible. Joshua, Judges, Ruth then 1 Samuel. Uh, Ruth is set in the period of the judges um, in the tribe of Judah and in the city of Bethlehem, which of course becomes central to both the king of David and uh, also to the birth of Jesus. But what ends up happening there is Naomi, of course, with her husband goes to Moab because of a, a famine, which is a sign of judgment. And to escape that, they go into the enemy territory where they take wives for their, hus- their sons. And then Naomi's husband and son's all die, and she's left with two Moabite widowed daughters-in-law, um, Orpah and and Ruth. And so uh, she tries her best to get both of them to go find their own lives back in Moab, and Ruth makes this covenant promise to stay with Naomi, even to the point of saying, your God will be my God, which this is the type of covenant faith that God is after. And so just like Rahab, you're going to get this picture of Ruth the Moabite coming into the family of Israel because of her faith. And then the story of Ruth is one of redemption. It's she has no hope and she has no land. And of course, we could talk about Zelophad and um, the, five, the five daughters of Zelophad. And I mean, this plays in big time into Judges. Man, we should have spent some time on that too. Um, but this, this concept of women being folded back in. And so you end up with Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, who ha- takes her as his own. But in order to do that, he has to first um, go by the law to the person who has the um, the right to that and of course rejects the right and then he takes her and the story ends with you know happiness so this is a beautiful little um romantic comedy that happens 
uh, to provide some levity in the midst of dark judges. But I want to direct your attention to Matthew chapter 1. So Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, and that is the genealogy of Jesus. And I want to just show you how exciting this is, because we've talked about Rahab and we've talked about Ruth. And then what in, we get in Matthew is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, by order of being the son of Mary, married to Joseph, who is a direct descendant of the Davidic line, which is why he was born in uh, Bethlehem. And you'll notice that there are three women who are, f who are highlighted and in the genealogy that stand out. So you have all of these men who are mentioned as the forefathers in a genealogy, which is typical. But Matthew has a purpose, and Matthew's purpose is to reveal that Jesus is the Messiah to the Jewish people, and he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And he includes in verse 3 in the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ that uh, Abraham the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. And so you're getting extra detail here to see, okay, this is about the whole tribe of Israel, Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, who was his daughter-in-law, you'll recall, who he thought was a prostitute and was, um, let's see, bamboozled into impregnating her and fulfilling what he ought to have done or what his sons ought to have done and that no one was willing to do. You'll remember he said, her righteousness exceeds my own. And so he is the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And then it says Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Abinadab, Abinadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Who was Boaz's mom? Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. Would you look at those apples? And Boaz, the father of Obed by guess who? Ruth. Isn't that awesome? Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king. And then lastly, and David was the father of Solomon by, not Bathsheba, nope, the wife of Uriah. And so the treachery of David and the prostitute uh, act of Tamar and Rahab and the Moabite woman Ruth all included in Matthew's genealogy leading up to the birth of Jesus. And so you see the central role that these women played in the Bible and how important it is to see their story alongside of God's purposes through the patriarchy. Matthew wants to make sure we get that in the story, and that's why these things matter. So that's Joshua and Judges and Ruth, all of them bringing about these different themes that ultimately point to Jesus, who's our leader, Savior, King, and he came into the world through the faithfulness of God and because of people who would continue to follow God generation after generation by faith, God always preserved a remnant, and whenever there was faith, the purposes of God continue. And so as we look to Jesus, let us also have the faith that our predecessors had, not be convoluted knowing a little bit of some things and bringing our own religious system into the works and getting God wrong and ultimately creating chaos for our world. This is the picture that we get from these books. Thanks for spending the time with us, and we look forward to connecting with you next week as we dive into the books of First and Second Samuel. Have a great week, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this week's deep dive into the scriptures. Our goal is to help you know Jesus better so that you can implement your identity in Christ, engage in your unique purpose and calling, and create community around your relationship with Jesus. For more content like this and opportunities to connect with us in person, find us online at joinwithjesus.org.